0: So because uh, I thought that our attendance would be down today and many people traveling, coming back from having left our city, I did not want to go continue through First Peter because the next section is very important to put the book together. So uh, I'm going to be in Psalm 3 today. There is no bulletin for you. There is one sermon outline right here. We couldn't print any of these things. Uh, so you just have to follow along as best you can. But we're in Psalm 3 if you have your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 3 or on your devices, uh, Psalm 3. Psalm 3, my thesis is, is a microcosm of life, the microcosm of the episodic anxieties that fall upon us. It is illustrative. It is a prototypical statement of what happens. Listen to David as he writes Psalm 3 as he's being hunted by his son Absalom, and Absalom's army. This is Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. Selah. The, the word selah it means to stop and ponder. Three sailors in this passage. So David's kind of breaking the passage down for us. He says, stop and ponder this. Stop and ponder. Stop and ponder. So the, 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 the background is that David had a son named Absalom who had a sister named Tamar or Tamar. And Absalom, the Bible says, was incredibly handsome from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And it said about his sister, Tamar, that she was an incredibly beautiful woman. So they had some really good genes on that side of the family. David had another son by another woman who was the half-sister to Absalom and Tamar, and he wanted Tamar, and she wouldn't acquiesced to his desires and so he, I'll make, I'm going to make this a PG sermon, he, he tricked her and he violated her and then he refused to honor what he had done. And so the Bible says and in the aftermath of this horrendous dysfunctional sin in David's family that David was burning with anger but as you read the text in Second Samuel, he did nothing. Meanwhile, the brother of Tamar, Absalom, brought his sister into his house, cared for her, and he waited for two years for his dad to do something. David did nothing. So after two years, Absalom had a banquet, and he invited his half-brother, and the half-brother came, and Absalom had him killed. Absalom had to flee for his life. He, was, uh, he fled for three years he was gone. He was out of the vicinity, and After three years, David, through an intermediary, welcomed him back, kind of, sort of, but he didn't receive him. So he's two years smoldering, three years exile, and then he's back two years, and finally David receives him. But not really. And so Absalom leaves David's presence, and four years later, 11 years, this has been going on, four years later, he orchestrates a coup and tries to usurp the king's, the the kingdom from his dad. So David has to flee with a hardy band of warriors, and he's in hiding from his son who is hunting him down. And he writes Psalm 3. He is in a storm. So I I thought about how, how this is a microcosm, and I thought about the storm we just went through, and I thought, you know, hurricanes really are a microcosm of life in that If you live in coastal South Carolina, they are unavoidable. Storms in a fallen world are unavoidable. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 7 about people who hear his word, he says, The one who hears my word and doesn't do anything about it is like the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. And when the rains come down and the streams rise and the winds blow and beat against the house, It crashed, and great was the fall of that house. I've always stopped at that passage and said, the Lord of glory did not say if, but when. I promise you, in a fallen world where there is disease and death and hurricanes, you will have storms that blow on your house. You will have adversity. So, So hurricanes are... Or unavoidable. Secondly, they're unsettling, to say the least. They're, they're unsettling because especially, I don't care how successful you are or how much of a self-made man or woman you are, when you are sitting through a hurricane and you're watching the powerful winds blow across your yard or into your yard or into your house or whatever, it strips away all illusion that you are the man or the woman. It's just a tiny little storm by the God who made all the universes, and it's it's unsettling because you're stripped of all self-sufficiency. But then I thought, as, as a believer, we believe a great God sends us, our adversaries. And how unsettling it would be if you are not a believer in Christ. You believe that everything's just blind, impersonal fate or chance. How devastating that would be to sit through a hurricane. We're still, it's unsettling. It's dangerous. Hurricanes are dangerous. Adversity is dangerous. You can make bad decisions. Next is filled with uncertainty. This is where I thought it was kind of humorous. You're sitting there and you ask yourself a thousand times do we stay or do we go? Do we stay or do we go? Do we stay? And you go back and forth and back and forth. And you call your friends and your family calls you. My, my family, I got, I got texts this week from friends in Hong Kong and California. Are you still alive? They were watching the Weather Channel. My mom called and said, we were afraid, Charles, we'd blown off the map. Do you stay or do you go? Do you stay or do you go? As one person said, why do you not understand about the term mandatory evacuation? And the people on the news say, say get, 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 get a lot of sleep as the hurricane approaches because uh, when it hits, you're going to be without air conditioning, probably outpower, and you won't be able to sleep well, and the problem of trying to get sleep is it's hard to sleep when you're up every two hours checking the new coordinates of the hurricane. So get plenty of water, get plenty of canned food, make sure your generator is ready to go and fueled up, and lots of fuel, and, and, and I read a story about a man who lived kind of remotely in the coastal region, and the trees came down. The, kept him from leaving where he lived and he was kind of trapped for several days without electricity but he had the generator, he had the food he had everything going, the only problem is he forgot to get a manual can opener and so he sat there for several days looking at canned food that he couldn't open and then you say well let's let's buy some hurricane comfort food, the problem with buying comfort food is that by the time the hurricane gets here the comfort food has gone no, you're, so, you're so on edge that you're just eating nonstop. It's like when our family used to take trips, my wife always was very gracious in making a big bag of food to eat on the airplane. And we'd take trips. And, you know, one time we went overseas and with our kids. And the problem with my son, who was a teenager, who could eat the legs off of a table, by the time we got to Atlanta, the comfort food was gone. And that's what happens in hurricanes, it's gone. And then it's physically and emotionally exhausting. It is exhausting. You put everything up, wrap everything up, take down the swings, put things around the windows. You sit there, the hurricane blows through, the next day you get up and do it all over again. It's exhausting. I'm physically and emotionally exhausted, and I didn't live through the storm with three or four small children. I see some of these parents that had these small children with them, and I'm thinking, good grief. It's difficult. So so storms are a microcosm of life. David is in a storm. He says here in verses 1 and 2, he says, first of all, he says, Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? And that is an incredible understatement. Listen to 2 Samuel 17. His son Absalom had a champion named Ahithophel, a great warrior. Ahithophel said to Absalom, who was trying to be king, Let let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight and I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed good, to absolutely. and started giving the thumbs up, but one guy came in who was really a, a, a clandestine agent of David. And said, that's a bad plan. That's a bad plan. Wait till the whole army gets here. Then we'll pursue him, giving David a chance to really get away. And, and so 12,000 versus the whole army. I mean, 12,000 people to me, a 12,000-man army equals Many. So this is an incredible understatement. David says, there are many who are after me. There, there are many who are coming after me with all their, their might. There were. And he talks about the accusations verse 2. Many are saying to my soul there's no salvation for him and God. They're accusing him. There's a, there's a guy named Shammai in the Bible during this whole time. He's a, a part of the house of Saul who was a previous king and this previous king had died because of his disobedience, and David was put on the throne. And as David's leaving town, Shimei stands on the brow of a hill, and, and he pelts David and his bold warrior men with rocks, and he curses them. And, and he goes down the hill as they go, and he keeps throwing rocks at them and cursing them. And he says, finally, David, you're getting what you deserve because of what you did to Saul in his house. Well, the truth is, David did nothing to Saul in his house but honor and love and cherish and care for them. But that's beside the point. And one of the mighty warriors says, Let me go kill this dead dog. Now, I calling somebody a dog in the time of King David was really the lowest of the low degradating statements. But call somebody a dead dog is really bad. And David says, no, let him go. Maybe God is trying to teach us something. It's pretty amazing. But many were accusing him, and some were saying like this, something like this, that David David was a lousy dad. You know what? I think he was. He didn't, he didn't really confront his son after the son horribly abused his sister. Come on. They said David is an adulterer. He was. David is the murderer. He was. David the deceiver. He was. Therefore, David is abandoned by God. Now, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do when you're in a storm and you hear the accusations that are true? I mean, David could say that's all true, and you don't know half of it. You don't know my secret thoughts. What do you do? It seems that when you hit these emotional divides in the storm of life, there there, there are two major roads that people go down. One is to vent and blame shift. Uh, It's not my fault. I was in a difficult situation. that, that, That woman was taking a bath in full view of my roof, but she knew it. So a lot of times we just withdraw and get quiet and bitter. Some of us grew, in, grew up in families that, that vent. Maybe they're Italian families. You know, They just get it out there. And the problem with that is sometimes people just vent, which probably is more healthy than withdrawing emotionally, but, but, but they vent and then they feel good because they're venters, but the people that aren't venters have collateral damage all over their bodies things were said that should never be said. And then you have those of us in families that just withdrew. We don't talk about those things. We don't talk about the the, the sequoia tree that grew up overnight in the den. You just walk around it. Just struggle walk around it. It's there, but don't talk about it. Not healthy. You become isolated. One of the great tensions of life is to is to, as a believer, is to walk in the light. In John chapter 1, this incredible statement is made in the prologue of John's book. It says, talking about Jesus and walking in the light, it says this, verse 4 and 5, it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness says not overcome it. And in chapter 3, Jesus is having this dialogue with a leader named Nicodemus, and he says this, verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is right and true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And we, we play hide and seek. And so our tendency is to just run into the darkness when the light exposes and gives healing and grace and shows us our sin and makes us run to the cross and take a step deeper into all that Christ is for us. So, so I look at this psalm, and David doesn't, David doesn't blame shift. He doesn't withdraw, but he brings himself before God which is the biblical response. We we bring ourselves before God. And and the Psalms, listen, the Psalms are raw emotional statements. If you you want to get down to raw emotions, you really ponder the Psalms. This is a raw statement here. So so David comes into the light, and he shows us how to handle anxieties, how to handle anxiety. This is what he says, starting in verse 3. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield." about me, or a shield around me. Now, in the days of Scripture, there were two types of shields. There was the shield that you would carry into battle with a short sword. It was a small shield to bounce off the glancing blows of other swords. But then there was a shield that you used to besiege a city. And these shields were tall and had a curved top. And, and so you, you, you went into a siege and it protected you from the flaming darts, but also from things they would fall, they would they would drop from 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 the top of the castle. This is that kind of shield. You are a shield around me, O Lord. And I, this kind of shield does you no good if you're running away. And what he's saying is, God, you are God, and you're in our midst, and you are King. and and, and I'm looking to you. I, I'm trusting you. Psalm 125 says this, those who trust in the Lord are like like Mount Zion, that that they cannot be moved. As as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. God is in our midst. So one step, the first step in this psalm to handling anxiety and walking through storms is God is my shield. He's in my midst. He's in our midst. He, 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 He guards me. He loves me. He's Abba Father. So I am a. The more I read, I'm a fan of this guy. You can see him. That's George Washington. I read a book this week. I had a lot of downtime to read about George Washington. Another book. George Washington. Um, quick story. Christmas, 1776. They had to flee from New York. The Revolutionary War or the the glorious cause is in the balance. We're not sure what's going to happen. Public opinion polls were basically down on this. And people were questioning the reality of it. And so George Washington realizes something needs to be done that will rouse the colonies. And so he does a daring move. It's an incredible move. He, on Christmas night gets in some boats. He takes thousands of men across the Delaware River as they dodge ice flows. And they surprise a group of hired mercenary soldiers called the Hessians from Germany, winning a significant battle capturing 900 soldiers. And the alarm goes out all over the area of Boston and New York that George Washington has done this. And and so there's a man named Cornwallis who says, I think we may have trapped the fox. They call George Washington the fox. And so, 5,500 men, highly trained British soldiers against a bunch of militia guys that have never been trained. No train. Advance on George Washington, and they realize they've got him trapped against the, the Delaware River without the boats he had. They can obliterate the army and call it off. There are 36,000 troops under the British banner in, in America at that time. 36,000. And so th- th- they approach. Washington knows what, he's, what, what they're doing. And so he makes some campfires, making them think that his whole army is there. And at and, 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 and night, on the night of January the 1st or 2nd, he, he takes his 4,000-man army and he slips around and he flanks them and he puts clothes on, uh, on, on the, the, the cannon wheels, and they're able to slip away. And so they get to Princeton, and there's this, this, this army's still there. And so Washington orders to charge against the army to drive them from the field. And so these militiamen with no training charge these highly trained troops at a battle called the Battle of Princeton. The, 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 the Revolutionary War is in the balance. And they charge the troops. And the British have something that we never had to the last year of the war. And that is they had bayonets on their rifles. We struck, struck, struck fear in the hearts of our men because they would just be run through with a bayonet. And so as the charge goes, they falter. The British have They're They're winning the day. They're about to decimate the army. And, and this is what happens. George Washington rides in their midst. And he rallies the troops and one of his staff people, a man named John Fitzgerald, took his hat and said he put it over his eyes because he could not bear to see George Washington shot and killed. They said bulls were flying everywhere. And once again, Washington miraculously escaped. He rallies the troops and they charge and they push the British to now what we call Princeton University, winning a great battle. I give that story. In the midst of the battle, you look at the commander. Our commander also rides a white horse. <laughs> you know? In the midst of the battle, you, you, you lift your eyes up, and he says, he says but you, oh, Lord, you're, you're a shield about me. In the midst of the battle of life, I'm looking to you. Now, that, 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 this is what David does. He's, he's hunted by thousands and thousands of men. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. Hebrews 12 in the New Testament, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, both past and present, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which tangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. See, you can you, you try to get rid of sin, but, but the key is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Verse 3 says, for consider him, consider Jesus who endured such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. No, how, how do you not grow weary and faint-hearted? You consider Jesus, you glory in Christ. The one who is our shield, the one who's in our, our midst, and we learn from him. We look to him. There is this definition of discipleship that I've given you many times. A disciple is a forgiven a sinner who's constantly learning from Jesus. Transformative learning. Constantly learning from Jesus. First of all, I glory in the cross, and then I say, I want to learn of Jesus. in in repentance and faith. See, people like that just just keep, I think just keep on plugging. Every person here has been in storms. Some huge. I don't know how many times I pray for people in this church and I've said to Sarah, I don't see how they're getting out of bed because it's hard. And yet, I, I believe as we look to Him and as we receive the Holy Spirit and as we take in the Scripture and and, and say, "God," I, we go forward. There's a movie years ago. I only saw it in high school, so I don't know whether to recommend it or not. But it's called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And if you're under forty, you've probably never seen it. But just bear with me. And it's two bank robbers and played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford at the height of their popularity and. And they rob all these banks, and they're being pursued, and so they go to Bolivia. And they're even pursued by the same U.S. marshal in Bolivia and a couple of times. The Sundance Kid sees these guys coming from afar, the same group coming, and he says, Who are those guys? Good grief. Who are those guys? And I thought, they you know... I don't want people to say that about the people who walk with Jesus who are part of the living community of faith. How, how, how do they keep on going? How do, they, how do they keep on trusting? How do they keep on leaning into the wind? Well, the answer. The Lord is a shield around me. Number two is he, he underscores his glory. But you, oh Lord, are a shield around me, my glory. glory here means the one who gives me my reputation, my honor, my significance. I find my significance in you. You're through a storm. A storm of life. Listen, I, I have wonderful friends and I love my friends, but friends will not always be there. I have a wonderful family. You know, my my family sometimes doesn't appreciate me as much as they should. (laughs) I have a wonderful wife. Ditto. Same thing. My health will not always be there. I love my job. Jobs come and go. So, So if I find my glory in friends or marriage or family or friends or job or whatever, and work, but if I find my glory in the living God and His love for me through the cross of Jesus, I was thinking about this. It's funny how your brain works, or sometimes mine doesn't work. But I was thinking about this, and I remember something happened to me when I was in the sixth grade, a long time ago. Raised in a small town, very small town, and in fact. If you've ever seen the movie, or excuse me, the show Andy of Mayberry or Andy Griffith, that little place supposedly existed within 10 or 20 miles of where I grew up. In fact, We can see Mount Pilate from my front yard. And Andy Griffith grew up in Mount Airy, which is only about 20 miles from where I grew up. So it's it's patterned after a small town. If you ever live in small towns, every small town has those cast of characters. And and, and the thing about being a small town is... Anonymity is really not that marketable. Everybody knows what's going on, or at least they think they do. So I'm in this uh, little small town where everybody knows everybody, 1,200 people, one traffic light. And uh, there was a guy that was, had graduated from high school two years before at, at Yetkinville High School, the Hornets, the fighting Hornets. And he had gone on to college, and he was a good-looking guy. And in fact, he was dating the woman who would, young woman who would be, would be the homecoming queen, just crowned homecoming queen. You know, in small towns, they have a homecoming court, and they ride in sedans and wave. And they're crowned at halftime by the captain of the football team. They get the first dance of the homecoming dance. It's really weird. It's really strange. And they've got a full page in the annuals. They're wearing long gloves like, they're, like they're, they, they've been to Cotillion. There was no Cotillion in Yakin County. I promise you that. So anyway... Homecoming queen, dating this good-looking college guy, and then they got pregnant. And it was the talk of the town. And they got married and had their baby, thank God. A few months after the big news came out, I'm with my mom, and we go by this young man, the the father-to-be, the uh, Mama. My mom knew her. And so she waved at my mom and smiled. And my mom turned to me and she said this, if you or your brother ever did what he did, I would never be able to smile again. And I love my mama, but that's weird. If you're trying to find your significance in the performance of your kids, they will let you down. These things happen. They do. I said, sixth grader, I said, wow. And then I thought about basketball. So it didn't make a huge impression until this week. I mean, the the whale at that time is today's rendition of dude. You know, I said, dude, you know, let's play basketball. But if, if that's where you live, you're going to be crushed. If I don't have the perfect marriage, I can't survive. Get on the Titanic. If I have perfect friendships... So, so David says here, you are my glory. And he says, thirdly, remember the substitute. He says, and you also the lifter of my head. And then this is what he says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So what's that about? Here's, here's the issue. Get this. This is cool. Holy Hill was the hill in Jerusalem where David's tabernacle was. Inside of David's tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top, with two angels over it. And what, what David is saying is, Lord, you lift my head because I can go to the holy hill. I want to go to the holy hill because that's where the tabernacle is, where the Ark is, that's, that's got blood splattered on it, and where we can meet with you for fellowship, See, I can handle these things because I remember the mercy of God and the substitute. I remember that, that there are two angels over it. And it's really neat that when Jesus rose from the dead and Mary goes to the tomb, what? Two angels. Two angels. The mercy seat is here. He's risen. Now, I, 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 I got so energized studying that this week. I, the, the, see, in the middle of anxiety, we go to and we remember The substitute. You see, people could say to David, his accuser, David, you're an adulterer. I am. You're a murderer. Yes. Deceiver. Yes. Not a good parent. Absolutely. But he says, but I can go to the mercy seat. I I I can go to the mercy seat. I love the hymn that says, before the throne of Christ I stand uh, and and I have a a pure and perfect plea, the spotless Lamb of God has died for me. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Boom! Holy Hill. I think of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. For, for years he struggled with faith. He says, I just, I don't, I don't feel good enough. I don't know enough. He was going to church and he was reading and thinking. He was a brilliant man. He says, one day he was walking in a field, and he heard a voice, I think it's a voice inside his head, because he studied so much, he said, your righteousness is in heaven. And he said, I was free. Jesus is my righteousness. Well, uh, this is so instructive to me. And and then he says this, he says, then we have the results. And he says this, verses 5 through 8, I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. How's your sleep? How's your conscience? Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. As the Lord builds a house, the builder builds in vain. In vain do we rise early, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I think, the Lord, give us sleep. Give us the sleep that shouts into our hearts, your hope is in heaven. There's a God who watches over you. And when the accusation of the devil comes and the accusation of your conscience comes, and they say, you've done this, you've done that, you've done this, you've done that, you said, yes, I have but my sins are forgiven. But my sins are forgiven. So, so he says, I, I can sleep because God sustains me. Number two, he says, I am not afraid. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. They say, so this is a literally true statement. He wasn't embellishing it at all. And then thirdly, and this is where he gets, this is the raw emotion. He says, I can, one result of focusing on the Lord and underscoring my glory and going to the holy hill, he says this, he says, Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Now, if you meet someone they say their favorite verse in the Bible is Psalm 3 and verse 7b, you probably need to find a new friend. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. And yet there's, there's something here you go, you know, the, the, the thing about God, God will judge the ungodly. We don't have to. We don't have to go around and poor mouth and run down character and, 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 and put people down or Slit tires or key cars. Because you say, God, you you deal with people. I I don't have to. Remember the guy that cursed David as he was leaving Jerusalem? His heart was already broken because a son had rebelled against him. And his heart had been decimated because the vast majority of the kingdom was standing up in one accord saying, we want Absalom, we want Absalom. This guy comes out and he starts throwing rocks at David and cursing him. And David says, well, maybe the Lord has sent him. God will deal with him. So, adversity. How how do we handle adversity? Adversity. How do we handle the storms of life? We look toward the captain. We look to the captain. We underscore our glory and our hope. And and we're people who understand and run to the holy hill where the Ark of the Covenant is with the mercy seat and the blood splattered all over it. We run to the holy hill called Golgotha where there's a blood splattered cross because the eternal God died on the cross as our substitute. Wow. Let's pray. Lord, today we are um, we are people who acknowledge and are fully aware that we live in a less than perfect world. In fact, we, we know that storms and Humidity and animals that attack and bugs that bite are the result of a fallen world. The creation is groaning, Romans 8 says, and we we see the groaning around us. And yet, Lord, you use these things under your sovereign care to shape our character. So even as we reflect on this hurricane this week, we acknowledge that, Lord, our lives are in your hands. We do not have control. This is just a little blip of a storm on one little corner of a universe in a vast galaxy of universes that cannot be counted. And yet you're God. You, you control this, and we acknowledge that. So, Lord, in the adversities of life, I pray you'd keep us from emotionally venting and blame-shifting. I pray you keep us from withdrawing and growing bitter. I pray we just bring our our, our attitudes into the light of all that you are for us. And as we do that, I pray that we would look to the captain of our salvation. As we do that, I, I pray that we would understand and underscore that you are our glory and sustaining grace, Lord. That we would not look to people or institutions or situations to give us our ultimate hope. And thirdly, Lord, I I pray that we would be people who with great joy go to the holy hill called Golgotha where the blood-splattered cross has fulfilled the promises of the blood-splattered Ark of the Covenant. And we thank you for that. May your kingdom come in our lives this day, Jesus. We pray for contemporaries who... Look at a storm and just say, well, there's nothing we can do. It's all the impersonal plus time plus chance, and, and uh, they, they have no hope. I, I just pray that you would give hope to people. You'd open the hearts of people to receive hope through the forgiveness of sin by the gospel of grace. I pray we would teach that to those around us and plead with people in Jesus' name. Amen.